Hello, I'm Ryan Tate, and welcome to History of the Pacific Northwest, Episode 8, The Maritime Fur Trade and Nootka Sound Controversy, Part 1. This episode will give a general overview of the nature of the fur trade in the Pacific Northwest. I will even note some typical experiences that were had by both the Euro-Americans and the Native Americans. I've used the term Euro-American on this podcast before, and I would like to explain it in some detail. Euro-American refers to the people living in the Americas who had a European ancestry. Up until around the 1800s, many non-native people living in the Americas still considered themselves citizens of their origin country. For example, those in the United States considered themselves British until a time after their independence. The same could be said for the people of Canada, Mexico, and Russian Alaska. The Pacific fur trade would attract British, Russian, Spanish, and American merchants who dreamed of making immense profits selling sea otter pelts in China. After Cook's expedition to the Northwest, where his crew sold the used sea otter pelts for $120 apiece, just over $2,000 apiece today. Many were ready to go search for more fur in the Northwest. However, traders were in for a rough surprise, as the Native Americans they left to trade with were not some passive, ignorant people to be exploited, but practiced and skilled merchants who would get nothing but the best deals. Language was one obstacle that had to be overcome, but not a difficult one. When needed, they could use gestures and signs to indicate what was needed. For the actual trade, it was not as difficult as one would assume. The Northwest natives around Nootka Sound were already experienced traders who likely had to overcome language barriers at times. To trade, Europeans would lay out their wares, and Native Americans would lay out their furs. They would stack them and make piles and indicate to each other what was fair or agreed upon. For instance, say a Native American wanted hunting knives. They would indicate they wanted knives and how many for a specific amount of furs. The native and the Euro-American trader would barter up and down until both agreed the trade was satisfactory. The coastal natives of the Pacific Northwest quickly became accustomed to the trade goods brought by Europeans and Americans alike. They were soon able to identify the quality of all the trade goods including metal, wool, and firearms. This went both ways though, as sometimes white traders were presented with the fur of a river otter, or whale oil that had been mixed with water. Aside from the occasional deception on both sides, trade was mutually beneficial, and neither the Native Americans or Euro-Americans would want to tarnish the relationship. Conflict did happen from time to time, but was much more rare than one would think. Euro-American desires in the trade did not change over the course of the maritime fur trade. Their mission was pretty much the same on each voyage. They wanted to acquire sea otter pelts and sell them in China as quickly and efficiently as possible. These traders came primarily from the United Kingdom and the new United States, but Spanish and Russian traders also made ventures to Vancouver Island and the Pacific Northwest in search of valuable furs. I want to stress that these were not simple missions. Sea otter pelts did fetch a high price in Chinese markets, but one must factor in the cost of a seafaring voyage. First, The trader needs goods. They have to load up on items that will interest the Pacific Coast people. Not mere trinkets, but knives, chisels, raw metal, muskets, etc. These are not cheap commodities to begin with. Then they have to outfit a ship with all its gear, buy provisions for 6-12 to months of sailing, and hire personnel. 
All of these costs can add up quickly and hurt profits if things do not go well. While Euro-American trade desires did not change, Native American demands did. In the early years of trading, the coastal people wanted knives, chisels, and metal. Later on, they wanted blankets to replace their need for sea otter pelts. As the trade went on for an even greater deal of time, the desire for exotic goods came about. This included rum, tobacco, molasses, and muskets. Muskets were not particularly interesting to most Native Americans after the novelty wore off. The loud sound produced by firearms surely shocked Native Americans when they first heard and witnessed them. However, when that initial shock and awe subsided, you're left with a musket that takes too long to reload and is inaccurate at 100 yards for all but the most experienced and practiced shooter. The bow and arrow was a superior hunting tool, and the musket did little to bolster the coastal people's hunting prowess. Traders tried many tactics to get the best deals they could. Familiarity did little to produce better prices. Village chiefs seemed to care little about flattery, not when there was a deal to be made. In fact, it did not take long before coastal people were pitting one trade ship against another. If they could not get the deal they wanted, they would tell the captain that there are other ships nearby who would likely pay for the pelts. It seems that people of the coast were already skilled merchants and knew well the tricks of the trade. Conflict did at times arise between the Native Americans and fur traders, but these were more rare than one would imagine. There was a cultural and language barrier to overcome, which in the best of situations can at times create friction. For instance, the fur traders were often on strict timelines and they could quickly become impatient. Coastal people had no reason to be in a hurry. The traders were coming to their homes, which were often permanent settlements, Coastal groups would often spend time singing songs and welcoming strangers engaging in important ceremony for their culture. Euro-Americans often saw this as a waste of time. They often complained of Native Americans coming on board their ships and being content to just hang out for hours, even days at a time. They were in no hurry to talk about trade goods or make deals. This could sometimes greatly aggravate their trade partners. Then there was the problems of petty theft. From what I read... It seems that stealing things was in some ways a game for a lot of coastal people. Stealing something successfully showed cunning and skill, and it was something to laugh off if you were caught. Not to mention the ships had so much on them that Native Americans didn't think they would even notice if something went missing. Euro-American traders did not see it that way, of course. Most of the time, they overlooked petty theft to preserve the trade relationship. A missing tool was fine as long as the trade quota could still be hit. However, a few would severely punish any caught stealing. This would result in not only the loss of a trade partner, but also an enemy to look out for. As I said, these instances were pretty rare. Many trade ships believed that all Native Americans were warlike, and this notion led a lot of them to be constantly on guard. For some, they would constantly be armed with cannon ready whenever trading. Being on high alert for violence hardly helps prevent violence. It should be said, though, that if the Native Americans wanted to kill the Europeans and take their ships, they very well could have. As I said, with time, gunpowder weapons lost their novelty. At the time, they would not ensure victory in a prolonged engagement against a larger force. Fur traders would have been greatly outnumbered and overrun. Despite that fact, the coastal people would have rather traded. Captain Cook noted that the only time the people he encountered at Nootka Sound became violent 
was when a neighboring tribe tried to trade with the Resolution and Discovery. The natives did not want anyone else honing in on their new trade partners. It seems that this early fur trade was a boon for the coastal Native Americans. They enjoyed what the Euro-Americans brought to them, and it added to cultural and political systems that already existed. The strength of village chiefs was increased during the maritime fur trade. They began to amass wealth and took control of the fur trade. In fact, traders began dealing directly with the chief and would even return to the same person for any future voyages. Village leaders would begin to use the goods brought by fur traders to buy sea otter pelts from the people of the village. Remember the potlatch from episode 2? If you don't, that's okay. The potlatch was a ceremony where the wealthy would hold a banquet and give away or destroy their property. This demonstrated their wealth and secured them a high position in society. They became more frequent and elaborate during the sea otter fur trade as the wealthy had more to give away. This wealth spread beyond the coast as well. Sea otter pelts were purchased in the interior of Vancouver Island and the Pacific Coast by coastal Native Americans. As the sea otter became more rare, coastal Native Americans had to look elsewhere to find more pelts. Useful tools and trade goods would go on to benefit many in the Pacific Coast region, even if they did not live on the ocean shore or trade directly with Euro-American traders. The rush for furs at Nootka Sound also led to competing claims among world empires mostly Spain and Great Britain. This competition would lead to a major controversy at Nootka Sound that nearly sparked a full-scale war in Europe. The controversy at Nootka Sound is interesting to say the least. As we know, both the Spanish and the British had explored Nootka Sound. Juan Perez sailed there for Spain, and Captain Cook sailed there for Great Britain. Neither man formally claimed the area, though. Juan Perez never went ashore, and Cook had believed that Spain had already claimed it since the people of Nootka were already in possession of Spanish wares. In 1785, after the publishing of Cook's voyages up the Pacific coast, King George III showed interest in placing a new colony in the Pacific, and even noted Nootka as a logical place to begin. Enter John Mears. John Mears was a lieutenant in the British Royal Navy, born in Ireland in circa 1756. He was the son of a prominent lawyer. Mears sought to establish a trading post in Nootka Sound to use as a base of operations for extensive fur trade in the region. In 1788, he would set out on this mission. He would pick up necessary supplies in China and then establish his fort at Nootka. Mears was known to engage in a bit of deception in the waters around China. Without getting into too much detail, he avoided paying East India Company fees by flying a Portuguese flag on a ship and registering it in Portuguese colonies in China. British ships were required to pay fees to acquire license to trade in East India Company waters. No other nationality had to do this, though. So Mears exploited this, which is shady to say the least. Mears loaded two ships with supplies and 50 Chinese carpenters to help build his trading post. Upon arrival at Nootka, Mears met with Chief McQuinna of the Nootka people. By Mears' own account, he indicated to the chief that he wanted to build a temporary house that would be given back to the chief when he left. To seal the deal, he gave McQuinna a pair of pistols. Mears would later claim the pistols were used as an act of purchase. In another account, Mears said that he outright told Chief McQuinna that he intended to establish a colony. In any case, 
Mears established a trading post and used it to extract more furs from Nootka Sound. Meanwhile, Spain had its own designs. Navigator Esteban José Martínez was tasked with establishing a formal presence at Nootka Sound for Spain. Martínez had sailed up the Pacific coast on the Juan Pérez expedition, as well as the Hesita and Quadra voyage. According to Martínez, when he came to Nootka Sound, he did not see any houses or signs of permanent settlement. He did, however, see a ship with a Portuguese flag. Still abiding by the Treaty of Tordesillas, Portugal did not have a good reason to be in Pacific waters. Martinez decided to investigate. He went to the ship and demanded to see their license and asked about their mission. The captain, William Douglas, was not Portuguese, but British. Martinez found it odd that a Portuguese ship had a disproportionately English crew. The final straw was the mission the ship was given. In the statement that the captain carried, it said that they were to explore and trade with the people of Vancouver Island, and if any Russian, British, or Spanish vessel attempted to stop them, then they were to use force to continue with their mission. Martinez saw this as an affront to Spanish authority. He believed Portugal had no right to carry out this mission, and so elected to arrest the men aboard the ship. That would be the beginning of the whole fiasco. Next time, we will dive deeper into the Nootka Sound controversy and learn how a little deception nearly sparked a war. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time.